I no longer felt ashamed to be in some ways a product of war and a son of refugees. I'm Alex Tat, and you're listening to Abroad, a lifestyle and culture podcast for those who choose a life abroad or for those curious about the international life. Today's episode is the concluding episode for the first volume of Abroad. We do not have a special guest today. Instead, I will tell you about my story and how I embarked on my international life and journey. I talk a bit about being born to refugee parents and moving abroad to my family's home country to learn more about my family's origins. Also, I share my experience on how relocating to the United States during an historically trying year has impacted me and why I am cautiously optimistic for the future. My international journey so far can be simplified by reducing it into three distinct chapters. The first chapter would be my time in Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City. And then the second chapter would undoubtedly be my time in Jeju Island uh, in South Korea. And then the third chapter would be now, my time in Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. Let's start with my decision to go abroad in the first place. We can rewind the clock to when I was 24 years old, and I was working at the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. I was working for their self-investing brokerage firm at the time, and it was my first full-time working, my first full salary job after graduating from the, univer- from the University of Toronto. I had been at the brokerage for about a year and a half now, and I was working as a client satisfaction representative. I had learned a lot about the finance and investing world, and I was in the process of completing the Canadian Securities course, which would have furthered or helped further my career in the finance world as a trader or some sort of financial representative. I was generally considered a good employee, but at this point, I was merely going through the motions. I worked hard and I worked well, but everything had become automatic and severely mundane. I was I was depressed and I was totally disenchanted with the work. I was totally disenchanted with the finance world at the time. And I kind of stared down this metaphorical tunnel and I examined the paths that laid ahead of me or seemed to be available to me at the time. I could have continued with the Canadian Securities course, finish it, become a trader or a financial representative. I Perhaps I could have gone a different direction, get some training and experience in working with accounts and sales. Another path I could have taken would have been to explore the idea of tech and IT within the firm. And I was a little bit curious about that, somewhat. Another alternative that I had tricked myself into believing often was that I would eventually study for the LSAT, and I would take it, and I would apply for law school, or I would apply for graduate school. But none of this seemed rewarding. In fact, it all seemed horrible. So I was in a crisis, or at least it felt like a crisis to me. I felt pressure from my family to do something productive, to be successful, or continue with school, either studying law or pursuing graduate studies. You might say to a 24-year-old that they don't need to have it all figured out, but when I was 24, with various internal and external pressures at the time, hearing that 
did not make it feel any more true. I was approaching a point where I had to make a decision, at least for my sanity. And it took a lot of mental gymnastics to make a decision and come to terms with it. And that decision was to quit. I didn't end up studying for the LSATs either. I didn't take the test and I didn't apply for grad school. Instead, I submitted my letter of resignation a few months in advance. I went to work at a YMCA camp that summer, and I continued working as a server at an Italian restaurant in West Toronto. I held a second job for many years, and I continued to bank money. I convinced my girlfriend at the time to buy a one-way ticket with me to Vietnam, and we embarked on that journey with a pretty vague plan to live together and work overseas. And we would do that for one year before returning to Toronto. And that was a one and done plan. Now, in previous episodes, I had mentioned that my immediate family were refugees from Vietnam. And they were refugees as a result of the Vietnam-American War. And I still had many connections to Vietnam. In fact, growing up, my mom often would take my sister and I to Saigon, otherwise known as Ho Chi Minh City, And we would spend summers there, enjoying our time with our extended family. Many of those summers, I remember entertaining my grandfather, who was approaching the centenarian mark at the time. And I would listen to him bash and hate on Viet Congs and communism. Um, He was a Northern Catholic merchant who vehemently sided with the Democratic South. And he actually uprooted his entire family from the North to move down South when the anti-imperial unification efforts were picking up steam at the time in northern Vietnam. So when my grandfather passed away, sometime at the age of 106 or something like that, he left behind a home for the rest of the family to use as a vacation home or something of that sort. And this home became my home. So my then girlfriend and I settled in there. We quickly achieved our TESOL certificate to teach English to speakers of other languages. And we also quickly found a decent paying job at this Asian international school. But I gradually realized after about half a year that this one and done plan was not going to pan out. One year was just, it just didn't seem to be enough. I had seen and experienced so many different things, but also I felt like I had not seen and experienced enough. And I felt like I needed more time. So... I stayed, and I planned to stay indefinitely with no timetable to return. My then-girlfriend and I ended up parting ways, and she went back to Toronto to pursue graduate studies, and I scrapped the one-and-done plan and pursued something that turned out to be much bigger. What caused me to change my plans was this recognition of my roots and origin on a deeper level. Although I was born in Canada, and I believe myself to be a good old Canadian kid, I could not deny the fact that a large part of my identity laid in Vietnam, and I needed more time to process that. So without realizing or expecting it, my decision at that time to live and work in Vietnam became the, the beginning of an identity journey and transformation. Earlier, I mentioned how my family were refugees, that they were displaced by the outcome of the Vietnam-American War. My mom and her younger sister fled Vietnam in secrecy, and they had paid a fixer with bars of gold to help take them away on a boat. This would later be known as a great Vietnamese diaspora, and the people who left on the boats, similar to my mom and my aunt, 
became known as the Vietnamese boat people. And they were rescued, my mom and aunt were. They were rescued and granted temporary asylum at a Malaysian refugee camp um, before Canada accepted their applications to immigrate there in 1980. Seven years later, I was born at Wellesley Hospital in downtown Toronto. Now, growing up in Toronto was absolutely fantastic. I have a deep love for that city. I have a deep love for Canada because it was a country that gave my mom, my dad, my aunt, and many other people who needed it an opportunity to live out a safe and peaceful life. And I I truly wouldn't be here if it were not for the humanity and kindness shown by the Canadian government and the Canadian volunteers at that time. But where I grew up was not racially diverse. I grew up in West Toronto. And as a young kid, I found myself often embarrassed by my roots and cultural heritage. There were many instances when kids would make fun of me for speaking my two original languages, which was Vietnamese and Cantonese Chinese. Um, They would also tease me for my lunch and and the way it smelled. And it made me become resentful um, of my parents. It made me resent them for speaking to me in, in languages that were not English, for, for packing me weird lunches that smelled, in other kids' words, awful. And I realized that, of course, this was all unreasonable and incredibly unfair to my parents. But as a kid, I just wanted to feel like I was part of the, the Canadian fabric and the Canadian identity. So in order to feel more Canadian, I ended up rejecting a lot of this Asian heritage as I was growing up. Well, fast forward to 2013, I'm now in Vietnam, and I'm surrounded by my extended family and other people who looked like me. And suddenly, everything I had rejected earlier in my life came flooding back. Family history was shared with me in great detail, stories about my mother, my aunt, and their childhood, stories about the war, all that had a profound and indescribable effect on me. Even my Vietnamese accent, which growing up was kind of mixed with a Canadian upbringing. But it carried a a specific northern Vietnamese tone. And there's a lot of significance to this that I learned while I was there. My Vietnamese accent turned out to have quite a bit in common or was derived from the Baki Namitu accent, which directly translates to the northerners of 1954. And this was a, a period of time in history where people like my grandfather and many other northern Vietnamese citizens in the 50s decided to move their family to the south because they sympathized with democracy and capitalism while rejecting communism and the red spread. So here was my accent being evidence and a lingering representation of that point of time in history. And hearing all of this, learning all of this, and connecting with all of it, I no longer felt ashamed to be, in some ways, a product of war and a son of refugees. So for me, that first chapter of international life in Vietnam was was about acceptance and rediscovery of my cultural heritage and identity. The second chapter of my international life, my time on Jeju Island in South Korea, still feels very recent. And I don't know if I can fully discuss its impact yet, because I'm still not sure the extent of which it has impacted me. I can say that while Vietnam was about me rediscovering my roots and my cultural identity, Korea was where I grew as a person in a relationship with my partner. My partner and I met in Vietnam and we started dating there. 
And when we both felt like it was the right time to move to another country and start new jobs, that joint decision to move kind of set the tone for our relationship going forward. It was one of the biggest decisions we had made as a couple to to move together and to interview for different jobs, for new jobs in a new country. And we would continue to make big decisions over the course of our time in Korea, including the decision to get married. Our So our time in Korea together pushed me to become more comfortable around her, pushed me to become more vulnerable. And as a result, I became a better communicator, something that is still a work in progress, as I'm sure she would tell you. But aside from that, Korea also pushed me in my growth as a professional, as an educator. My time there was surrounded by incredible people, and they were talented at their craft. And inevitably, they left imprints on me. For example, a friend and former colleague, Bill, shaped me in how I question students, how I encourage language and knowledge production. So Bill, if you're listening to this right now, your idea of giving ELL students more opportunities to speak the connecting language really impacted and influenced my teaching philosophy for the rest of my life. So thank you. There were other people as well. Um, Another friend and former colleague, Hannah, she inspired me to question my own limitations and expectations of myself. And she would often model what it meant to be prepared, to be organized, and above all, to be caring. And then I had my team lead, Stacy. She, she modeled the importance of respecting people's time and their boundaries, what it means to be efficient, and what it means to be logical in order to solve problems. And of course, there was Dan. Uh, he was a previous guest in, on this show, and he was instrumental in how I approached my relationship with students, how I taught them, how I coached them. Not to mention, he also helped me fall in love again with soccer. And that's just fantastic. So thank you, Dan. All of these people, all these relationships and experiences, these were just a few of the many that I was fortunate enough to, 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 to experience in my time in Korea. And I trust that I will have a firmer idea of what Korea meant to me as I process it some more. Perhaps I truly haven't had time to appreciate my experience there because It is currently bookended by my time in Vietnam, which was my first true abroad experience, and currently my time in the United States, which has, in many ways, been overshadowed by the events that are taking shape this year, right now. If you're enjoying this episode of Abroad, make sure you're hitting that subscribe button and tune in to new episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. If you currently live abroad and would like to tell your story on the show, or you know someone living abroad who has a great story and might want to share, please reach out by email, alextat at gmail.com, or Instagram DM at thisisalextat. I would love to collaborate. And now, back to the show. So currently, I am based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the American South, and I've been formally living here in the United States since July 15th of 2019. So that means I've been here for roughly 14 months now. And one question that I get asked a lot about since moving here is this, how's it been living in the United States? Um, Both Americans and non-Americans alike have frequently asked me this question or variations of this question, often while tilting their head and giving me some type of searching look. 
And it almost reminds me of this episode from the show Friends, where Richard, Monica's ex-boyfriend, played by Tom Selleck, is asked about his divorce. And Richard explains that people who are familiar with his divorce will tilt their head to the side and ask him how he was doing with a certain sympathetic voice, to which he responds with a head bob and says, I'm okay. That's great. How have you been? Oh, well, obviously, you know, Barbara and I split up. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done the head tilt. The head tilt? Yeah, since the divorce, when anybody asks me how I am, it's always with a sympathetic head tilt. How are you doing? You okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it's, it's fine. Believe me, I do it too. I always answer with the I'm okay head bob. I'm okay. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I'm fine. When people ask me this question, what it's like to live in the United States, there is this implication of recent negative backdrops. And I recognize that it's, it's not a trap question. Instead, it's more indicative of or sensitive to the, the goings-on of the year 2020. So it's no surprise that 2020 has been a tumultuous year. For those residing in the U.S., we are experiencing heightened natural disasters, the degree of which we have never really observed before. Historic and devastating wildfires, Atlantic hurricane season that has broken all-time records, and a wet and warm Arctic that is actually not an anomaly anymore. While climate change is still being questioned by those in power. It'll start getting cooler. I you, wish, just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. Hey, well, I don't think science knows, actually. We are witnessing massive racial injustices in the forms of existing systems that racially oppress historically vulnerable and disadvantaged groups of people. And it's being documented and being shared at blistering speeds. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. There's a coronavirus pandemic, and that continues to wreak havoc, and it continues to run its course, exposing massive blind spots and incompetencies. The data speak for themselves the 190,000 deaths are real deaths. The six plus million people who are infected are real infections. You know, it's just a, a, a distortion of reality. People who don't want to face the reality that we are dealing with a serious situation that we can do something about. And no course of action or plan seems to be present. And what is looking like the ugliest election year? in all of U.S. history, is just under 50 days away. It's my greatest concern, my single greatest concern. This president's going to try to steal this election. To make matters worse, since many people have been working from home, self-isolating, quarantining, what have you, our opportunity to consume digital content is at a greater level. And what that means is that conspiracy theories are gripping the minds of many Americans to the point where we might see those people who espouse these views be elected as lawmakers and put into other positions of power. According to Media Matters, at least 14 QAnon believers could make it to the ballot in November. One of them could be elected to Congress. Marjorie Greene is in a runoff in Georgia in a safe Republican seat. She's shown her support for QAnon on social media in the past. So when people ask me, Alex, What's it like to live in the United States right now? 
I bob my head and I say, it's okay. But I'm also exhausted. That's not to say I don't enjoy it here. Atlanta is a fantastic city, generally quite progressive. It has amazing culture, amazing food, music, history, everything. And I've met amazing people here. Um, and being exhausted does not mean I'm not hopeful for a better future. The marches and protests for racial justice have been especially encouraging and inspiring for me. Since the very public murder of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, I've attended several of the marches and protests that ensued, and they were all peaceful. They were organized by neighborhood families, community organizers, and various other groups of people. And there was even one event that my partner and I went to that was led by Jalen Brown, one of the Boston Celtics star players, who drove about 15 hours from the Northeast all the way down to Atlanta in order to help organize. And all these events had one thing in common, and I noticed this really quickly early on, that there were large numbers of passionate and caring young people. They were university students, college students, and even high school students, basically the TikTok generation, or I guess better formally known as Gen Z, Generation Z. And this next generation, this young generation, is very important and very inspiring for two reasons. First, young people, their presence and their energy represent the future. It's a cliche statement, but certainly a true statement. And they are working for positive change, and they're hungry for that change. And that change will come. The late John Lewis, um, he was also once a young man, and he was participating in the March on Washington. And he had told John Lewis back then that his efforts during that march would eventually help bring about the first black presidential inauguration. And that first black president, Barack Obama, would also become his friend. That young John Lewis might have been somewhat skeptical, to say the least. But this illustrates an important point, that it's the efforts of young people that sets in motion change for something better. And we're seeing it now. Second, this generation is important because of their lowercase l liberal and progressive views, and it represents a massive, powerful voting demographic. So whether you tune into politics or not, engaged young voters make an enormous difference. And it is highly likely that this group of young voters, the TikTok generation, Gen Z, galvanized by what's going on right now, will make an impact on the voting process from the local level all the way to the federal level. Now, being an educator and working with kids for nearly a decade, I've seen this burning desire for social justice in my own kids. And similarly, my colleagues have seen it in their own kids. Um, the earliest groups of kids I've worked with have been vocal and active for social justice, and many of them can vote now. They can vote in their own countries, or some of them are in the United States and are eligible to vote there. The later group of kids that I've worked with are equally vocal and active. And they will also be able to vote soon or in the next election cycle. So change is slow and sometimes excruciatingly so, but it's inevitable. And I, for one, am excited to see how this injection of youth voices will affect the issues that are important to me. Now, why does all of this matter to me? Why do I care? Why does it excite me? I'm a Canadian and my time in the U.S. is likely very temporary, a small drop in the bucket. But it matters because 
What happens in the United States reverberates to many corners of our world, whether people like it or not. Arguably, the most important thing to ever come from the United States and influence the rest of the world is its social and cultural export. So ideas such as freedom, democracy, equal opportunity, these ideas that are further represented in culture such as Hollywood and music play a massive role in shaping the rest of the world. And this show, Abroad, looks at how issues and events happening in the host country or back home might impact the person and everyone else. Well, what is happening right now in my host country, the United States, as exhausting as it may be, has deep impact and massive consequences for me and for everyone else. Thank you for tuning in to the concluding episode of Volume 1 of Abroad. And thanks to everyone who have been following along on this project. Volume 2 is already in the works, and I hope to publish it soon. If you've enjoyed listening to Abroad so far, make sure to subscribe and follow on your podcast player of choice. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at thisisalextat to find out all things related to this show and more. Abroad with Alex Tat is a one-person production, and there's a lot of hard work that goes into producing each and every episode. If you would like to show some appreciation, please leave a review. The show benefits immensely from your comments and feedback, so drop a review on Apple Podcasts, and please reach out and write by email to alextat at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the next volume.